And I'm saying to myself, does he think he could kick my ass or something? He probably did. He probably did. Hey, everybody. What's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. Today's guest is one of the preeminent football fathers, for lack of a better term. He was a second-round pick out of Villanova in 1985 and has gone on to watch two of his three sons be first-round selections and play in the NFL. I'm talking about the Hall of Famer, Howie Long. But to get to where Howie Long is now, to where he started, is an unbelievable story. Hope you enjoyed the episode, the Hall of Famer, Howie Long. So I'm just curious, like, as your life has unfolded the way it has, what would you say to a young Howie Matthew Moses Long as a townie about how his life might unfold? Oh, God. Um, you know, I've thought about, I've thought hard a, a number of times about, could I, could I do it all over again with all the forks in the road and all yeah. the obstacles and, you know, moving from one house to another house, to another house, uh, not playing football till my sophomore year in high school after the busing riots hit in Boston. And I don't know that I could do it all over again. And and to try to explain this to that guy, yeah, no way. I mean, you, you got to remember, I, I go back as, as early as, and I say early, it's a long time ago, 1981. I'm making 38 grand. In the NFL. Yeah. My check's $1,007 after taxes. I'm driving a used Coupe DeVille. I'm in Oakland. It, you, you couldn't even explain it to him, let alone the kid from Charlestown. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that I could. Uh, I, you know, I, I would need someone there to kind of uh, explain it to both of us. Yeah. And when I say town and you say Charlestown, for people that don't know, you, you grew up sort of in the neighborhood depicted in Goodwill Hunting. I mean, that that was sort of the area of Boston more, that you were more from. More the movie The Town. Uh, the Town, yeah, yeah. Yeah, The Town was, the town was I think, based on a book uh, from the 60s, but set in present day. Yeah. <clears throat> and that would have been, you know, at that time, what year was that? I, I can't remember what year that was, but they nailed it. Uh, they really did. You know, when they go into the one in the projects and go into the one, uh, one knock in the one door and they were wearing hockey masks and they jacked somebody up who did something to a girl. And, you know, uh, that was literally 500 feet from my house. So yeah, we grew up there and, um, it's a great place to be from. Uh, I think it, it builds a lot of character and, uh, makes the rest of life seem easy. Yeah. How would you describe, your sort of formative years? You know, I was, I was, you know, we played in the street. I grew up, um, I was on Albion Place. It was maybe a hundred yards from the, the L train and uh, it was a dead end street. And my grandmother worked, you know, across Rutherford Avenue, I could see it right from from our street at Hood's Milk, and my uncle George worked there, and everyone else worked in the projects, either in South Boston or uh, a number of uh, units around the city. Um, my uncle was a cop in uh, the North End, my uncle John, um, 
Irish Catholic kind of family, never played organized sports growing up. Everything was done in the street. You know, it was, whether it was Bunker Hill, you know, elementary school, uh, you know, playground or, you know, Eden Street Park or wherever, you know, you played ball hockey, football, basketball, baseball, you name it. It was all done in the street. And while this was all going on as a young guy, uh, you know, not a particularly tough kid, just a, you know, nice kid, uh, grew up in a few different homes. Dad left home for a, a period of time uh, when I was probably, I think, I want to say 10. And uh, at one point was homeless in, in on Main Street downtown. And I, you know, I, I had the good fortune of having my grandmother, who is the kind of the matriarch of the family, you know, classic Irish Catholic with the statue of Mother Mary on the behind the bed with the rosary beads on the on the the bedpost and, you know, really heavy Catholic. And uh, I had four uncles who all in some way played a big part in raising me. You know, I lived with my Uncle Mike, my Aunt Edie and my grandmother. Then the busing riots hit and then I moved out to Milford. My uncle, my uncle Billy was the first relative to move out of the city. He still worked in the city, drove a Maverick with a basketball size hole in the floor on the passenger side <laughs> and drove from Milford, which is an hour drive into yeah. Boston, snow, rain, you name it, with a hole in the floor. Had two kids, two adopted kids and, you know, him and my, my aunt, my Aunt Ada uh, took me in. And, you know, when I say we were strapped and, you know, you got to make ends meet. And he did it. I don't know how he did it. You know, thinking thinking about it now, the older I get, the more perspective I get and the more I appreciate the sacrifice that he made taking in a troubled 13-year-old. Um, but that was where the the first kind of fork in the road came. And Dick Corbin, who ended up coaching at Harvard, I think for about 15, 20 years, you know, God rest his soul, he's passed away, uh, saw me walking down the hallway and I was a, you know, tall, gangly kid and asked me if I wanted to play football. I didn't even know how to put football gear on. Uh, and, you know, we had a really good program and a, you know, good team and had a few guys that ended up, you know, either playing in or getting a cup of coffee and whether it was the NFL or Canadian Football League or, you know, or the USFL at that time uh, and had the good fortune of being a part of that. And it was the first time being part of a team and and realizing that could there could potentially be more. And, you know, got two scholarships. One was to Boston College. Mike Mayock was my uh, my host on my trip. And I think Freddie Schmerlis was was involved in that trip. I it, it's Fred all Smurless. There, there, there's there's a name. There's a name from the past for people that know old time Buffalo Bills. Fred Smurless. Boston College. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they had just beat that year. They had just beat Texas. Was the number one team in the country, and they beat Texas. They had really, really good team. And Freddie was on that team, and Mike Mayock was on that team. And uh, I'm 16 years old. You remember, I graduated at 17. I played my freshman year and started at Villanova as a 17 year old. Wow. So it, it it all came early. So my grandmother in her 
infinite wisdom. And my uncle Billy got a bad vibe from, you know, whatever it was in the recruiting process with Boston College. I had verbally agreed to go to Boston College and then opted to go to Villanova. My grandmother wanted me to get out of the neighborhood and, you know, get a fresh start. And I literally, when I tell you, Trey, I went down there with the clothes on my back, uh, not a dime in my pocket, no driver's license, no ID, and uh, not a cent in my pocket and stayed there for four years, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, spring break, summer school. I was there for four years and and that was the next fork in the road, you know, and, and so many people impact you, whether it's Dick Corbin at, you know, Milford High School and, you know, some of the players I played with, Pat Cornelius and, you know, uh, uh, Waxy and, you know, good, good people. And, and then going down to Villanova, Bob Capone and yep. uh, so many lifelong friends you make from Philadelphia. And, you know, then uh, oddly enough, a player that I had played with in high school, Joe Restick, who ended up going on, I think, to captain Notre Dame. And when you see the movie Rudy, he's one of the names that, you know, Rudy scrolls down to see if he's He's going to dress that week, and it's Joe Rustic. Right. His dad was a coach at Harvard, and he was on the Blue-Gray game committee. And the Blue-Gray game had a player that got hurt, and they needed a replacement. And uh, ironically enough, Jimmy Johnson was the head coach. And, uh, you know, Joe Rustic Sr., the head coach of Harvard, uh, you know, got me into the Blue-Gray game, and I ended up winning the MVP. And, you know, the next thing yeah. you know, it's like one – one thing after another, another fork in the road. And then the then Oakland Raiders, uh, who have made a number of stops since then, uh, <laughs> were, were had a coach named Earl Leggett, who also brought up Michael Strahan and was, I think, the best defensive line coach ever in professional football and took a bunch of guys like Greg Townsend, who'd never played defensive end, Sean Jones, who could barely get in a stance. Wow you know, cause he was just a big gangly guy from Northeastern played small ball and um, Bill Pacal, who was uh, uh, way too tall to be playing, you know, nose guard and uh, you know, made us all, you know, the players we were. And, you know, that's a lot of sacks and a lot of pro bowls and uh, championships. So, so before we get to the Raiders and all of this stuff, when did this 16-year-old in Villanova or 17-year-old starting in Villanova, when, when did it strike you? Because I think everybody has a moment, like whether it's uh, in a practice, in a game, something a coach says to you. When did, when did it hit you like, hey, this might work out for me? You know, I, I, one of the moments that I, I really remember was this. It was my freshman year. And you're going to remember when I left my Uncle Billy and Aunt Ada's house, because, you know, we were doing the macaroni and cheese and, you know, the, yeah. the kitchen closes at six o'clock and you can't go in there. And I was six, five two twenty, and I was a big person waiting to happen. I'm 16 years old. I go down there that summer. Um, I, I, I ironically enough, and this is a crazy story. I had failed marine biology by two points. And I would fail not, marine biology. Just so you know, I would fail it as you know, well. It sounded romantic to me as a 16-year-old, but it turned out to be – it wasn't a good move. But, I, you know, I thought, hey, look, the track coach is the teacher, and, you know, I probably could have been more efficient with my studying at that point. And uh, because of that, I ended up having to – I go down to Villanova. I'm at summer school, 
at Cardinal O'Hara High School in Philly. Okay. Wow. So they would drop me there. The the assistant O-line coach, Mike Danaher, would drop me there, and I'd have to thumb back like seven miles, eight miles, back to his place. And that summer they fed me, they gave me a meal card. I, you know, this is a weight room, you know. Yeah. And I was these are weights. You lift I them. Was, yeah. I started camp at six five, two sixty-six, uh, as a seventeen year old. And and I remember in that camp, you know, for me it was a jump. Here I'm seventeen, there's guys that, you know, are twenty-two years old and, you know, grown men, they're shaving. I barely have hair under my armpits. Um, and they had an all East center named Chuck Lodge, who was a really good player. And, you know, you do the usual kind of training camp pit drill, one-on-one, put two dummies down, running back, you know, offensive player. And I remember picking Chuck up and, you know, dropping him on his back. And, you know, I, I'd never done anything like that. And it, it was kind of like the, the, it was an epiphany for me that, you know, I could actually do that. Now, you know, the player that evolved from freshman year at that moment, you know, all the things were there, big, strong run, athletic, but had no idea how to play football, didn't know anything about formations or technique or anything like that. So it it really wasn't until I got to the Raiders when I fully potentialized, you know, what I had. So, so that play in camp sort of lit the lit the spark, but it wasn't until you became a professional that you really thought I might be able to do this. Well, I knew I knew when. Listen, you know, Chuck Lodge was a really good player, and yeah. you know, at that moment, it, it it told me that all the doubts that I had as a seventeen year old going down to play major college football at that point. You know, it's not Oklahoma, but you right. know. At some point, we played Boston College every year. We played Clemson one year. You know, so you you're 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 dipping your toe in a pool that's pretty deep. Um, I I think for me the the moment that I realized <clears throat> maybe in pro football, uh, it was probably the strike year in '82. I, I came in and rushed the quarterback my rookie year on third down. I lived with a guy named Cedric Hardman, who uh, just passed away a couple of years ago, great 49er defensive end, who was Joe Green's roommate in college. And when, you know, we played the Steelers on Monday night, Joe Green comes over to our place in Alameda, and it's like, it's like you know, God just walked in the room. You know yeah. what I mean? And Joe was cool. And, you know, fast forward to 2000, I'm at the, you know, post-Hall of Fame induction ceremony and the DJ's gone and, you know, all the people that I don't know that are at my party. <laughs> and, and, it's like your wedding. You don't know half the people that show up right. at your wedding either. Dave Wilcox and I, Merle, and, and you know, we, we it was a great group. And uh, I didn't know any of the people. You know, I, I really didn't know a lot of people. So, but at the end of the day, when everybody cleared out, it was Joe Green and me sitting at a table having a beer. And yeah. that just, that arc of, you know, from... Charlestown, not playing organized sports, Milford putting on a uniform with some help uh, and then going to Villanova and having the opportunity at Villanova. It was a challenge financially. It was a challenge academically. 
And it was a challenge from a maturity standpoint. You know, you, you grow a lot from 17 to 21 and uh, <clears throat> trying to process that on your own because I couldn't go back to Uncle Billy and Aunt Ada because, you know, it was a great strain for them to have me there for three years. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me to go back after going to Villanova. So Villanova was home. That was my, you know, extended new family. <clears throat> and, you know, guys like Bob Capone, and uh, who's a classic South Philly guy and coach on the staff and uh, was an integral part of me, uh, you know, surviving Villanova. Well, if, if Villanova was a, uh, you know, a challenge financially and a challenge emotionally, and a challenge maturation wise, I guess all of that had to set you up for the challenge of joining the Raiders in the early eighties. No, I don't and, listen. You know, listen. I don't think people, I don't think people fully understand well, now what it was like being a well, Raider in 1981. I'll tell you what Villanova it, it, and it was a cocoon. It was kind of a cocoon. Yeah. It's a walk yeah, campus. Sure. It's yep. intimate. I think at that point there were six, 7,000 students, you kind of, everyone knew everyone. Uh, there were no, you know, it was, it was male dorms, female dorms. There was a priest on virtually every floor. <clears throat> My dorm had a church, had the communications department, had a gym. So I could get, I could get God, I could get a workout in and I could eat all in the same building. And you go from that to the Oakland Raiders and, you know, there's guys in the room smoking Salem lights and they're playing cards and, you know, <laughs> you know, Ted Hendricks is, Ted Hendricks was, to say it was, there was nobody like him at Villanova or anywhere that we played. Yeah. He's all of six, eight. He's, he's, he has a, a thirst for life. Would that be a, a kind of a, a way of, he enjoyed and, the entire selection. Let's put it that way. And Ted, by the way, was the smartest player I ever played with. Ted could, Ted could walk in on a Monday morning, maybe a little hungover, and and dissect every play that they're putting up in the team defensive meeting room. And in the game, he'd say to me, "Howie, here they come, fourteen Bill Jokero." And sure enough, fourteen Bill Jokero is coming. Uh, wow. For those that don't know, real quick, Ted Hendricks was a nickname guy, just an incredible athlete. His nickname was the Mad Stork. He talks about his rings. He calls them his Super Bowl rings. He calls them his babies. I mean, he was in many ways the epitome of what it meant to be a Raider in that time frame. He was. And, I, you know, there are a lot of characters. John Matuzak, Lyle Alzado, yeah. Lester Hayes, Matt Millen. Uh, I, you know, when I got there, Archell was there. Gene Upshaw was there. Uh, Mark Van Egan, Cliff Branch, uh, you know, Fred Blitnikoff's on the staff, Jim Otto. Did, did you cross around. with Van McElroy as well? Was he, he was there? Yeah, there, Van, right? yeah, yeah. 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 Van was a favorite of our defensive line. We we would, at, at some days on, on like a Friday practice, we'd strip him down to his jockstrap and make him walk in. But we loved, we loved Van. Van was a tough, tough player from Uvalde, Texas. You know, yeah. God, God save those people down there, boy. What they've yeah. been through. Yeah. Uh, uh, Van Van went to Baylor when I was there, so that's that's why I had yeah, to sort yeah. of throw that in there. Baylor, but, but I, yeah. Baylor for me coming from Villanova. I mean, my first trip south of like Maryland was the Blue Gray game in Alabama. Yeah, and it's like, oh my god, this is yeah, like it's, 
you know, different. Baylor might as well have been France. I, I never went there. <laughs> well, there is a Paris, Texas, not too far away, that. but trust me, they're not the same place. I know they are that. Not. Texas is so big, they ran out of things to call it. There's a Paris, Texas. There's an <laughs> Athens, Texas. There's a Rome, Texas. Like, you can get anything you want in Texas. They had to, they had to steal names from other places. It was so big. We should compare names of the places up in Montana. You know, Montana's yeah. a big state, too. It's, you know, yeah. and we get the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for all the players that were sort of on the fringes, for lack of a better term, I think that there's a, there's a whole generation of people that don't know the Al Davis that you knew or the one that I knew growing up as a kid in the 70s uh, and then watching, you know, the, the football in the 80s. Like, there's this perception of Al that's out there for his latter days when things weren't great and, you know, yeah. he was making some irrational decisions. <clears throat> And by but the way, not, we'll, we'll, by the way, we'll all be there at some point. Correct, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's an unfair portrait of who the guy was for the majority of his time in the NFL. He was a wild man and an innovator, and did not care what you thought of him as long as we got the job done. I, what's that phrase? Often imitated, you know, never duplicated. duplicated. Yeah, it, he uh, br- first of all brilliant. Yeah. Um, it, brilliant in so many ways, both from a from a you know a, a business standpoint, a legal standpoint. It seemed like we were in lawsuits with everyone, you know, whether yeah. it's the city of Oakland or you know it's L.A. or it's the league office, it's the rift between uh, the commissioner and and the organization, and specifically, <clears throat> I called him Mr. Davis. You know, that's just maybe my background, but. Um, he was, as I mentioned, the let's take the football part of it. Yeah, he knew everything that any coach on that staff knew. He knew everything about the offense, everything about the defense. He'd ask me about players. You know, he'd, you know, oh Howard, you think he called me Howard, and it was Howard. Uh, you think you're fucking tough, you know? <laughs> like, and I'm saying to myself. Does he think he could kick my ass or something? Yeah. He probably did. He probably did. No, I, I, I know. I listen. He, he was an impressive, impressive man, but he wasn't kicking my ass. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he. Uh, the, the one thing I will say is, you know, he could be, he could be benevolent. Yeah. You know, particularly to players that had played there or people who were had come back who were struggling. Uh, he could be tyrannical. I mean, he was, when there was a vendetta, you know, it, it, it held, you know, they think the Irish hold grudges, you know, I mean, he definitely held grudges, uh, <clears throat> but he was brilliant. And I think it was the most unique place to play for a number of reasons. One, you know, it gave me the opportunity there early you you really didn't have to try to imagine what greatness looked like because it was all around me. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, when you're going against Art Shell and Gene Upshaw every day and, you know, Art ends up being, you know, a position coach and then head coach and coaches me there. But, you know, from when I was just turned 21, getting out there to Oakland, uh, Gene Upshaw, Art Shell had a big impact on me. Ted Hendricks have a big, a big impact on me. And, you know, <clears throat> Jim Otto is around and, you know, Freddie Blitnikoff's on the staff and 
cliff branches flying by like nothing like I've ever seen. We didn't see that playing Delaware. You know, I mean, no. <laughs> he's running like a four two. You know, yeah. And you know, it was God, in today's in today's NFL, Howie, he would have been Tyreek Hill. No, no question, no yeah. question. Uh, and and he should have been in the Hall of Fame earlier. And I wish, you know, I'm I'm glad he's in, and yeah. I'm glad that happened. And his sister was there to do a great job at his induction. Uh, but I, I, I just wish Cliff Clifford had been there, <clears throat> but the interesting part of the organization with all the chaos and all the characters and all the stories, I mean, we had a guy that was responsible for just getting people to practice and keeping them out of, you know, guys would disappear for a day or two and you had the beat writer. So it, it never, ESPN was, you know, a fledgling kind of entity in a garage in Bristol. You know, we were doing time. Australian rules football at that point. Right. There's no cell phones. There's there's no documentation, no photos, no videos, no recordings. But the one thing I will say about that organization is it was all about it was all about playing and winning. Regardless of what happened Monday through Friday. And and you never, we were an island unto ourselves and no distractions ever got into the building. Nothing came into the building. There were no friends of watching practice, you know, a, a, an owner, a general manager, Ron Wolf's the general manager. I don't know that he had that title, but Ron was a general manager. I just thought he was a nice guy upstairs. I didn't know what he did. You know, I, <laughs> I really had no idea. <laughs> Until later on, when I heard there was a an Elway trade that he, he Elway would have came to the Raiders, I'd go to the Bears. It was like a three fourteen trade, and Ron said, uh, "No, that that wasn't wasn't going to happen." I would have traded me for John Elway, right? <clears throat> uh, but we never saw that part of it. We never yeah. saw all the distractions, the lawsuits, all of that stuff. I, I think. You know, the only place I could see to like that is probably New England. And, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by them and fascinated by Bill. And having a son, having played there and won a Super Bowl there, you know, it's exactly how I thought it would be. It, it really is. Well, listen, I, I don't think there's a story that sort of epitomizes how different things were back when you played, as opposed to the way the NFL is branded as a business and an entertainment entity now and something that happened after a playoff game. So why don't we take our first break here? We'll come back with more Half Forgotten History. Oh boy, with I think I know this story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone needs to know this story. <laughs> All right. Welcome into the Mercedes-Benz trivia segment for this week. Our guest is Howie Long, football Hall of Famer, who had two sons that went on to play in the NFL, and both were first-round picks. But Howie was a versatile athlete in high school. Besides football, he played soccer and basketball, but set records in another sport. Can you tell me what that sport was? We'll get to that after the break. You know, you open up a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter and you're opening more than doors. You're unlocking potential to do your own thing, be your own boss, and live out your own dreams. With 16 body types, your choice of a gas or diesel engine, and thousands of ways to customize, a Sprinter van is capable and versatile enough to help you drive your ambitions as far as you want to take them. So go ahead, unlock your potential inside a Mercedes-Benz Sprinter. All right, everybody, I want to tell you about an app I use quite frequently, and it's Zelle. Look, whenever you're out on the golf course, you're playing with your buddies, the round is over, you've either won or you've lost, and it's time to either collect your rewards or give away your punishment. 
Using the Zelle app is so simple and easy. You don't have to reach into your wallet, look for a 20 or a five and make sure you had the right bills. You open up the Zelle app and you either tell people, I kicked your butt today, give me my rewards for kicking your butt, or you can quickly and less humiliatingly just send them the money and you don't have to dwell on it. Either way, whether you win that round of golf or you lose, Zelle makes the transition of the funds so much easier and simpler and everybody is a little happier. All right, back with Hall of Famer Howie Long on Half Forgotten History. So it, it's been sort of fun to just let people understand what it was like. And, and for people that see the NFL as this polished business that's everywhere and in our face all the time, like something happened involving you and the general manager of the New England Patriots after a playoff game, as well as your teammate, Matt Millen, who was my teammate at ESPN for many years, that is almost impossible for people to comprehend actually happened and how much different it would be if it happened in 2022 as opposed to January of 1986. I, I believe in, in just for clarification, I think, I think Buckle Kilroy was the GM and Pat Sullivan okay. was the owner's son. So I'm not sure what his title was air. Gotcha. That, no, that's fair. That's fair. He was, he was in the front office or something. Right. He had right. A title. And, yeah. and, you know, I don't know what he did there, but you know, there had been a story earlier that week we're playing the Patriots in, in a playoff game. And there had been a story earlier that week in the Boston Globe that guys like Freddie Schmerlis or myself or a number of other players who were local players, the Patriots really didn't, you know, give a good look to or, you know, at least that was the crux of the story. Right. And my, my, my comment was, I, you know, listen, and I, I firmly believe this, and it has nothing to do with the Patriots. I could say that about any team. If I had gone to any other team than the Patriots, I don't know, than, than the Raiders, I don't know that I would have ended up being the player that I became. Uh, <clears throat> part of that is Al Davis. Part of that is Earl Leggett. Uh, part of that is all the players that were around me as a young player. This is what greatness looks like, kid. You know, this is the ring you want to get. Uh, and I, I think... Uh, you know, it, it's a unique place. And, and so in the article, I, you know, I said something like that. You know, I, I'm glad I went to the Raiders, you know, I, yeah. at the end of the day. And and at that point, I certainly was. Um, and there's this guy, and I don't know who he is. I, I really didn't know who he was. Going up and down the sideline and, and dog cussing me <laughs> the whole game. And I'm like, who's the guy who's like a buck 70 dog cussing me walking down the sideline? And I'm – and – the game's over. We lose. You know, we're not in the not in the greatest of mood. And and you know, my thought process was always, you know, and, and our kind of thought process. And Matt had this thought process too. One, we walked off together most of the time. Matt and I were very close. <clears throat> and I always had my helmet on. I never took my helmet off after a game. I always kept my helmet on until I got in the locker room because you never know. Because in those days, you really didn't ever know. We yeah. weren't on Instagram. We weren't Snapchatting. We weren't texting one another. I, you know, there were a lot of guys I played against for 13 years that I never spoke to socially yeah. because it just wasn't done at that time. So now I see this guy. My peripheral vision's pretty good. Uh, we're walking up towards the tunnel in the Coliseum, and I see this guy walking towards me. I'm saying, so, "Am I going to have to drop this guy?" Because <clears throat> I don't know what he wants. I don't know who he is. And he started, Howie, Howie, and I, you know, I'm just ignoring him. I'm walking towards the tunnel. 
And he's, and then he gets mad because I think I'm ignoring him. And, you know, I, listen, I, this, this, this could be the, the seconds, uh, of specifically how it went down. I'm not sure, but it was something like this, you know, he says this and you don't know who I am. You know, you, you, I own this team. Okay. And then it dawned on me. He's the, he's the owner's son. Yep. And I think I said something smart ass, like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but unless your dad died last night, you, you don't own anything. <laughs> and, and now he, I don't know what he was doing, whether he was <clears throat> reaching to shake my hand or, or what. And Matt saw this. Now Matt sees this guy who he doesn't know who he is either reaching for me. Matt takes his helmet off. Allegedly. Allegedly, supposedly. And somehow, I'm not sure if he tripped or stumbled, Matt's helmet accidentally hit Pat Sullivan in the head. Crazy how that happens. It, uh, you know, what are the odds? <clears throat> and By the he, way, there is video evidence, not video, there is photographic, there is a one photo, I think, from the Boston yeah. Globe of this happening. So <laughs> Yes, and ironically enough, I think the guy that grabbed me, who's kind of this, I, he was a security guy, and I, and I don't even know his name, uh, and, and he was just an innocent bystander, but he, he had to do what he had to do, trying to get me away from the owner. Yeah. He is, I believe he worked in Station 1 with my Uncle John in Boston. So he was an off-duty cop uh, who was security for, you know, the owner's son. <clears throat> and there's blood. When I tell you there's blood everywhere. Allegedly. blood everywhere. And it's a melee going up the tunnel and, you know, the whole thing. And uh, imagine if that happened today. Well, that, that's what I'm asking. First of all, what was the result of that? Were there any fines, suspensions? I don't know that the league had my address. <laughs> it's, I mean, think about that, right? After a game, oh, I, the I, son I, of an owner allegedly and some business some front office capacity gets into a melee with a couple of players and there is allegedly blood everywhere yeah. and okay see you next week have a good season we're going to play in the AFC championship game and we'll figure it out when matt was getting his heart replaced he was he was on the list to get his heart replaced yep. he was in of all places newark you know yep. newark had the the one i think the heart center where you know so ironically enough, it, you know, I'm doing Thursday night football at that point and we're doing it out of New York. So I'd fly up there. I'd get in the car. I'd, I'd drive over to Newark hospital and he was in intensive care because you can't catch any kind of a virus Correct. Yeah. or anything in those days. And he was there like 73 days, something yeah, like that. Yeah, he was in there a long time. He was in there a long time. And I think we had that conversation about this, the alleged incidents and, and all the speculation around it at one point in there. And we both had a, a chuckle. And, and, you know, the ironic thing is Pat Sullivan ended up going on and, you know, his big business was satellite trucks. Yeah. So he would always be at the stadium. And, you know, I, I would, whenever we were at a game, I would <laughs> invariably run into Pat Sullivan and I'd say, hey, Pat, how you doing? And he'd say, hey, Howie. And, you know, we kind of moved on. I, I think uh, that was the norm back then. You know, hey. Yeah. How many fights were there at Raider practices? How oh many fights God. were there in the Raider locker room? How many fights did I yeah. see on the plane? Uh, you know, this this world we live in now, 
you know, is it better? Sure. Uh, I think it is. And it's probably a lot safer. Yeah. Yeah, probably because the, the eye in the sky is everywhere, not just watching players uh, on the field. Now, that's the craziest story that I know of, okay, allegedly. Is there another alleged story that people need to know about that's been secret all these years with the Raiders? <clears throat> that's that's the – see, that's the, the – the, million question. Uh, Allegedly, no, there are no other stories. Good enough for me. Good enough for me, Howie. Good enough for me. I I take you at face value. We don't, I I don't think there's a, uh, it's Fight Club. You don't, you don't talk about Fight Club. Rule number one, do not speak of Fight Club. Um, So you, you were a Raider your entire career. 13 seasons. Even yeah, even in, I, even in that era that was a little unusual. W- was that important to you? Was that something that that mattered to you to, to go start to finish in one place? You know, I couldn't imagine playing somewhere else. You know, we played a 3-4, you know, which yeah. for those who don't know, three men front, two outside linebackers, two inside linebackers and it's it's a bang bang bang, you know, two gap system and you know when I was I'd watch the Vikings on film and Millard and Dolman you know they're yeah. just pass over and running around blocks and having fun <clears throat> I thought about that but I never thought about the possibility of going somewhere else I know I know there were teams that had tried to acquire me but uh you know according to Ron uh that was never going to happen Al I was I was Al's pick, uh, and you know, to his credit, he saw something in me that, quite frankly, I didn't see. Uh, you know, and I said that in my Hall of Fame speech. You know, it's if I don't go there, I'm not sure I'm here. And yeah. like I said, there's a lot of forks in the road, uh, and I hit a lot of them. And you know, somebody was there to kind of guide me. And you know, I I meet my wife at Villanova. She was a classics major. I wasn't. <laughs> not a marine biology major either, if I'm not no. mistaken. <laughs> she went to uh she went to USC law school, was a lawyer out in LA for a bit, and then our third son was born and she said, I'm I, the boys need me. And I said, oh, thank God. Yeah. Um so the hardest thing I, I think for a for a guy like yourself that was a second round pick and played, you know, Pro Bowls, Hall of Famer, is to to look in the look at the tape and say, I'm not sure I'm getting it done anymore. Like, uh, when did you decide, hey, I may not be the player I was, and it might be time to to pursue other pastures? Well, you know, a lot went into the equation. One was I, I've got an eight-year-old son in Chris now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm Whatever there, happened to him, by the way. Right. I'm there, but I'm I'm kind of not there. Yeah. And because you got to remember, I played 13 years with not a penny guaranteed. Not right. one penny. Yeah. So, you know, the, the kind of pressure that you were under, particularly with a family, a young family, I've got three sons now and, you know, we're trying to raise the boys and uh, I'm making, you know, at that point, one, three, one, five, one, seven, you know, something like that. And, um, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, when you grow up the way I grew up, you you kind of there are times when you wake up at three in the morning and you're back there and yeah. you're you're broke and you're, you know, all of the above. And it's like, oh, thank God. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> <I'm not clears throat> and there's a lot of pressure doing that. So 
One was I wanted to be more present with my kids, you know, as much as I could be. And the other part of it was what direction was the team going in? And, you know, the one disappointment I have is that I, I never, you know, we had a shot there at the end of my career. And, you know, the, the two, one, I, I made the Pro Bowl my last year. I thought that was a good way to go out. And two, I think Chester McLaughlin went down in that game. And I ended up going off sides three times trying to, just trying to do too much. Just yeah. at 34, trying to do too much. I'm trying to carry the load like I'm 23. And it was kind of a, to me, it was a, a knock on the door saying, you know, don't let the old man in. Well, you know, <clears throat> I thought going out in the Pro Bowl, uh, but not winning or getting the opportunity to play in a Super Bowl with Art as the coach was a disappointment for me. But I thought going out as a Pro Bowler, being more involved with my son's lives and having the opportunity to coach little league baseball for eight years and high school football for eight years. And, uh, with Kyle and Howie and, and Chris, I'll, I'll never regret that. They were, they were the best of times, you know, their, their successes are so much. I enjoy their successes so much more than my successes. I, I don't even think about that stuff. I, I, I enjoy their stuff. And, you know, watching, you know, both get drafted in the first round, Howie being an All-American lacrosse player. And he was Kyle's quarterback in high school. And he goes to Virginia on a scholarship to play uh, lacrosse. And Pretty good, uh, pretty good lax place, by the way. Kyle, takes the, Kyle takes the Lewis and Clark route to, to being a first-round pick for the Bears. And he's, he's a pro bowler his first three years. And he played six games in college under Chip Kelly and – uh, you know, I, I think everyone was shocked that he get picked the first round, and yeah, and then he goes to the Pro Bowls first three years. It's like you know, uh, no yeah. problem. Well, you know, you're, you're one of those few Hall of Famers that is probably more well known for what you did after your career than what you did during your career. And while we take our second break here, we'll take our second break here. We'll come back and, and get to the post career with Howie Long. Stay with us. What's up, everybody? Trey Wingo here. Just five weeks left in the NFL's regular season. And if you're ready to get in on the action, let's get you set up with everything you need to know with Trey's Trends, presented by Caesars Sportsbook. Okay, it's a big week for division games. We have three division leaders playing a division opponent, and each of those division leaders are giving at least seven points. And those kind of spreads have hardly been a sure thing for favorites this year. In fact, check it out. Underdogs, when getting at least seven points against a division opponent, this season are 5-8-1 and one straight up and 10-4 and four against the spread. For some perspective, those are the best such numbers in those kind of games over the last 30 seasons. Now, the Jets were one of those big underdogs that won earlier this season. Week 9, they upset the Bills while getting 10.5 points. These two meet again this time in Buffalo, where the Bills are now a 9.5-point favorite. Uh, the other division leaders giving at least 7 points. Uh, the Chiefs are minus 9 when they take on Denver in Denver. And the Giants are getting seven as they welcome in the division-leading Philadelphia Eagles. If you're ready to place your bet, it's very simple. Download the Caesar Sportsbook app to get started. Must be 21 or over, 19 and over in Ontario. Must be physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ontario, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, or Washington, D.C. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, Ohio, Utah, and other states where prohibited. Know when to stop before you start. Gambling problems? Well, in Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia. If you or somebody you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER. That's 1-800-426-2537. Or Maryland, visit mdgamblinghelp.org. West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Diego got that. Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Colorado, D.C., Nevada, Wyoming, Kansas. Affiliated with Kansas Crossing Casino. Call 1-800-522-4700. Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IOWA. Call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Louisiana, call 1-877-770-STOP. Licensed through Horseshoe, Bossier City, and Harrison Orleans. Michigan, call 1-800-270-7117. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Ontario, visit connectsontario.ca or call 1-866-531-2600 or text CONNECT to 247247. Tennessee, call or text TN Redline at 1-800-889-9789. All right, welcome back to the Mercedes-Benz trivia segment. Before the break, we asked you, in what sport in high school did Howie Long actually set state records? It wasn't football, it wasn't basketball, and it wasn't soccer. It was the shot put. Howie could chuck it, as well as tackle a guy trying to chuck it. And now back to our segment and episode with Howie Long. All right, back with Howie Long here on Half Forgotten History. So, how quickly did you decide or did someone help you decide that hey I want to go into broadcasting and I want to be in entertainment and I want to do movies and all that kind of stuff uh, none of that really you know I thought maybe there's a possibility something could pop up but we wanted to, we made a decision we wanted to raise the boys somewhere other than LA you know not there's anything wrong with LA but you know it, I, I had something else in my mind and so did my wife Diane so we looked around the country from during my last year from Oregon to Cape Cod, you know, and, and as south as North Carolina and thought about it. And we looked at Montana. We have a home up there, but not a full time home. And we we made the decision to move, sold the house right after I retired. Uh, we lived in Palos Verdes and beautiful. I sold the house and we moved on a Friday. And I got the job at Fox on a Monday. <laughs> so so now I'm I'm commuting for 16, 17 years from from Virginia, driving up to Dulles, two hours, two hours and ten minutes, trying to find a flight that works, and you know, then coming back and trying to get the team stretched for high school football. And uh, you know, it was you know, I, I, I told Chris, I, I think I told Chris or Kyle, I said, you know, I think I had like 1.3 in the bank <clears throat> after playing. And, you know, then the house got sold and we used that money to buy another house for a lot less money. And I thought, you know, if I just keep busy with our lifestyle, we're fine. Yeah. And then Fox got the rights to uh, the CBS package, uh, the NFC package from CBS. <clears throat> and uh, David Hill, who, you know, was the architect of building the Fox, what, what at that time was Fox Sport. It was a blank piece of paper. And, right. you know, there were there were nobody in, there was nobody in the building. Um, and, you know, David Hill, Ed Gorin, Scott Ackerson, uh, it was a kind of a fresh approach to this is what we're going to do with the pregame show. And you, and you have to remember at that time. Nobody had done a pregame show for more than a half hour. Right. And people thought, what in God's name are you going to do with in an hour? What are you going to have to talk about? <laughs> and, you know, you come to find out a, a one-hour show goes by so quickly. Yeah. You know, then the Super Bowl is five hours, six hours. And you say, what are you going to do? What do you do? It, it's you have so much. There's so much there. I'm a wealth of, of knowledge that's really of no consequence to anyone other than football people. And yeah. you just pour it out there. So once again, it's one of those forks in the road. And, you know, Fox gets the package, David Hill, 
<clears throat> he takes a different kind of outlook. And at, at that point, I don't believe a player had gone from the field to the live studio at that yeah. point. <clears throat> and David had a vision of what he wanted. And uh, we had some conversations. He, he did some boxing. I did some boxing, you know, he, it was, we related well and went out there for a tryout. I tried to be Bob Costas and, you know, it was a terrible tryout. And they, you know, they said, what happened to the guy we saw in the interviews? And I said, well, no one told me what to do. You know, there was, there was no, you know, now they have programs for the players and they can, you know, work on being a broadcaster. This was show up. I've got a stack of papers. I've spoken to the commissioner. I've spoken to 14 coaches. <clears throat> I've done this, I've that. I've watched every film there is. And I'm giving you, you know, it, it covered three. They rotate the safety up. They're going to bring the slot corner, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they don't, that's not what Fox wanted. Fox wanted to invite you into a family room with some guys having beers who you yep. can relate to. <clears throat> and little did we know that would turn into the number one pregame show for 29 years. Well, it's been, it's the murderer's row of, of pregame shows. Like, you know, as, as much as, as much success and, and fun and winning that you had with the Raiders, like that show, as far as pregame show has been the standard for as long as it's been going. Yeah, we, I think we were really fortunate. We caught lightning in a bottle. Terry and I couldn't be any more different. Yeah. You know, Terry's a quarterback. I'm a defensive lineman. He's a stealer. I'm a Raider. He's from Shreveport. I'm from Charlestown. I'm Catholic. He's maybe Baptist. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, he's like the older brother I never wanted. You know, I mean, we <laughs> – we can finish each other's sen sentences. We we understand. You know, there's a nuance, as you know, when yeah. when you you have a, a good partner in the studio, um, when you can cut in, when where the humor can stop, where the line is, <laughs> and uh, you got to remember, my kids were eight years old when I eight, four, and three when I got there. So Uncle Terry, who is like Uncle Buck, just yeah. just the you know a parent's nightmare as an uncle <laughs> because he'll say all the stuff and talk to them about all the stuff that you don't want them to talk to him about exactly. and do all that stuff. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> I remember we were doing a Notre Dame game and he was down in the bar and he had my kids in the bar and I'm up there looking at my, of course I'm up in the room doing, you know, the flipboard and, you know, I, I, who is the biggest baby ever born in Louisiana, you know, all that right. stuff. And I get a call down there. There's there's a little bit of a trouble down there, and I've got to come down and get Terry. And he's got my kids in the bar, <laughs> and he's he's. I think he gave one of them a drink or two. You know, I mean, nice. got to start Uncle young. Buck, Uncle Buck. So we're we're blessed. You know, it's we caught lightning in a bottle, and you know, you can. I think there's a genuine. I laugh from five a.m. till five thirty six o'clock when I walk out of the studio. And that's yeah. 29 years running. Yeah. <clears throat> so you can't, I don't know if you can really, somebody will capture that at some point, uh, but they haven't as of yet. Well, listen, I understand it. Like my favorite job in my 20 plus years at ESPN was doing NFL live for 15 years. And the guys yeah. that I did it with, you know, Schlereth, Darren Woodson, uh, yeah. you know, Ryan Clark, Merrill Hodge. They're, they're guys, they're still my guys. You know, I, you know, I still Teddy Bruschi, Damian Woody, Herm Edwards for nine years. Like yeah. we still talk all the time. So yeah. I believe me, I completely understand what you're talking about. 
But I have to ask you this, because you dabbled in movies, like there was Firestorm and what, Broken Arrow and a couple other ones. One of my all-time favorite movies, like literally off the charts, one of my all-time favorite movies that no one would ever think of as a great cinematic masterpiece is That Thing You Do. Ah. And just, just this past February, I swear mm. to you, we decided to watch it uh, when our daughter what, was out with us at our place out in Hawaii. Watch we watched the director's cut. Yeah. And I see Howie Long is in that thing you do. I was blown away. I was blown away that that entire sort of uh, a story arc was cut out of the movie. I think it, you know, one, Tom Hanks, a Raider fan. Yeah. Um, and I think probably that that was 99% of the reason why I was even there for a cameo in, in the movie. <clears throat> and it was depicted to me as... You know, there's no overt kind of reason to believe that Tom Hanks and I are boyfriend and boyfriend. Right. Uh, but you you get that, you definitively get that impression Absolutely. from the one scene. And I think it was a Disney film. And, you know, maybe because it was a Disney film, it, it got dropped. Maybe because I was bad. I, I don't know. I never. Nah, you were that. good. I was like, I, never there had he the is. I know that I guy. I had the opportunity to, you know, talk to Tom about that. <clears throat> but it was fun to do. Uh, yeah. It was, no, it was, you know what? When Tom Hanks calls you up and listen, I've had the opportunity to work with Kevin Costner, Kurt Russell, John Travolta. Uh, and, and Tom Hanks, you know, and they're guys that you just, if they're on, you're watching them. They're, yeah. they're great. And, you know, they were, they were great to work with. No, it just, it blew me away. Cause literally we own that movie. I've seen it 20 times and I had never seen the director's cut and lo and behold, boom, yeah. there's Howie Long. <laughs> yeah. Guys everywhere. Um, yep. are, is your, is your, are your movie days over? Like, is that still something that entertains you at where all? It, where it kind of ended for me, um, Broken Arrow was was great. Got a call yeah. on that. It was a Fox movie. And John Woo was the director. And I was supposed to be there for two weeks. And we were up in Montana at the time, I remember. And uh, I'm supposed to be there two weeks. I'm there a week. John Woo comes in my trailer and he was just the sweetest guy you could imagine. Yeah. And I'm just there for the ride. I mean, I'm, you know, yeah. listen, John Travolta is it's the food's better. The budget's better. The, you know, the hours are better. I remember one time we were driving down the road, supposedly trailing someone in a Humvee and, <clears throat> you know, hum Hummers have those big kind of center, you yeah. know, things where you could put a, you could put a, a trash can on there. Uh, and John turns to me and, you know, I'm, I'm just about to, I'm just showing up, I'm working and, you know, whatever they asked me to do, I'm doing. And two weeks turns into three months. And, you know, John says to me, uh, how's your energy? I said, you know, what, a, what is this a trick question? My energy's fine. I'm good. Yeah. He said, you know what I think we need? I think we need some cookies. <laughs> he goes on the, the, the walkie talkie. Hey, uh, Bob. Howie, Howie's energy is a little low. He wants, he wants some cookies. <laughs> so he was room. using you to get what he wanted. I, whatever. You know, John, John was a fun guy to, to work with. And they ended up sending the helicopter out because we're in the middle of nowhere in Montana. Yeah. We're dead center by Lewistown, which, you know, yeah. there's not a lot there. <clears throat> and a helicopter goes out and gets us 
a thing of cookies and they put it in the thing and we finished the scene. Uh, but really where it, it hit for me was Fox had uh, preemption rights if I went on and did something else beyond Broken Arrow. So in other words, if somebody else came to me with a film, they had five days to exercise their option on putting me in another film. Yeah. So I think it was Disney came to me with a film uh, and it was a post-apocalyptic film and it was a bigger budget. And uh, <clears throat> so they ended up preempting me. Not only did they preempt me, but they had me do the movie in Canada during football season. <laughs> now the budget's 16 million versus what, you know, I think Disney was somewhere around 30. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a script that's not finished. And we've got a first time director and Dean Semler, who is a, a great, great man. And I think he won an Academy Award for cinematography with Dances with Wolves, just a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, so I'm working seven days a week for three yes. months. And I've got three kids back in Virginia who are setting ramps up at the pool and riding their bikes off the ramps into the pool. And my <laughs> wife is having me get on speakerphone because there's no FaceTime at that time. And, yeah. and, you know, at some point they come to realize, you know, we looked at the map. He's in Canada. The earliest he could get here would be tomorrow night. So he's no real threat to us right now. And they figured that yeah. out quickly. And I think if I had signed on to do another movie at that point, there would have been a moving van outside the house. And and yeah. really it was, I, I missed so much at that point. And it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a great profession. If you can, if you can get the work, uh, great, but it's, it's somewhat selfish. Uh, and yeah. for me as a dad with three kids, I'm so glad I was there and, and, you know, had the opportunity to be there for a lot of the moments. Yeah, look, on a much le much smaller level, my son, I didn't miss any of his games through high school, went on to play uh, a couple of years at Georgetown in college. And I was very fortunate that my schedule allowed me to be there because I would have hated, hated it flies to miss by. those games. Yeah, it, it flies does. by. And then you realize, wow, they're adults. And what am I doing now? Like, my what's, wife, what's, what's the plan? My wife's been going to stadiums. Since 1977. Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, th through college with Chris and Kyle and Howie, and then, you know, Kyle gets drafted in the majors by Chicago, ends up going to Florida State. Things don't go well there. He goes out to JUCO, goes to Oregon. So she's every week. She's on a plane to Oregon. Then she's catching Chris's game in St. Louis or, you know, Kyle's not playing this week. He has a groin injury and, you know, switch jerseys, get in the car, drive to drive to drive to St. Louis and, and get the kickoff. I don't know how she did it, but, you know, now we're kind of we're empty nesters. Everyone's retired. Uh, now we're just enjoying the grandkids. So so with that in mind, you know, we we, we started this and you've been generous with your time and I don't want to take up too much more. Um, you, you, you couldn't figure out how you got to where you are from being a, being a townie for lack of a better term. What would you say, what, what advice would you give to someone who might have currently be in a situation like you were in? Things weren't great at home, moved around a bunch, didn't have access to, you know, high school film and, you know, all the video clips and all this kind of stuff that just wants an opportunity. What would you say to th those kids today? 
You know, I, I think most kids in that kind of a position, there's, there is no looking back. Yeah. You know, you, there's no place to go. It's kind of like the officer in a gentleman scene where he said, I've got no place else no to, go. to go. He had I want no your DOR. Yeah. He had no place else to go. Yeah. There isn't a, a, another place to go. And <clears throat> I remember when Kyle was at Oregon and I, you know, I, um, I like Chip Kelly. He's, you know, a straight shooting guy. And one of the kind of the mantras of their team was win the day. Win the day has a lot of meanings. It's you can't control yesterday. And in those days, I couldn't control yesterday. I couldn't control, you know, dad, mom, you know, where I'm living, anything like that. I had no money. You know, you're, <clears throat> I go to Villanova with the clothes on my back. I, my thought process was I'm surviving today. Today will take care of tomorrow. If you're looking back at yesterday, you know, today's in jeopardy and that impacts tomorrow. <clears throat> and you know, I've always been, my thought process has always been if I struggled, and Michael Strahan and I talked about this on Sunday as applied to a, a player we were talking about privately, is if I'm struggling, I'm going back to the basics. I'm I'm there an hour ahead of time. I'm I'm on the sled. I'm footwork. I'm I'm doing a million reps. I'm gonna grind. I'm gonna keep my head down. I'm gonna shut up. And, and I'm going to take care of it because that will take care of everything else. Work as hard as you possibly can. And I told my kids this, you work as hard as you possibly can and good things will come to you. They might not come to you in the timetable or reveal themselves in the way that you saw it in your head, but yeah. it, it will work. Wow. Got powerful words uh, and from a man who's lived it. Howie, listen, I always loved watching you as a player. I've enjoyed uh, being Thank somewhat you. of a contemporary with you as a broadcaster. And uh, uh, Chris and I talk all the time. I don't know how that happened, but it, it just sort of worked out. So uh, I appreciate you being with us today and sharing your story. Thank you, partner. Appreciate it. Good being with you. Once again, thanks to Howie uh, for the great times and the great conversation and for having two really good kids who are really, really good at football. Speaking of kids and speaking of football, it's a big part of next week's guest. He's one of the most traveled quarterbacks in the history of the NFL, but he's always a guy that found a way on a roster because of not only the way he played, but the way he carried himself. I'm talking about, of course, Josh McCown. Uh, his story also pretty fantastic, and you'll hear that next week. We'll see you then. Yeah.